0: Sam's doing his PhD on the Europeanisation of British Defence, looking at the Panavia tornado as a case study. So he's an ideal person to speak on our next topic. So, Sam, please, take it away. Thank you very much, Harry, and uh, thank you, everyone, for coming today. Um, so, empty skies. I'll be talking about that quite a lot today, and I think you can kind of get at what I'm trying to say. So, labelled as one of the greatest procurement disasters in the history of British aviation, BAC's TSR-2 was specified, designed, and developed during a critical period of the Cold War. Cold War tensions appeared to be cooling following the harrowing events of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and aggressive cost-calculating and politicking seemed to be penetrating defence programmes in Britain. Much has been made during this conference already of the changing operational landscape in which the Royal Air Force found itself in, transitioning post-SUEZ to a narrower European future. We have already heard today much about the changing political forces in Britain with the ascendance of a new Labour government. These changes would inevitably uh, put the Royal Air Force in an unenviable position. The prospect of an empty sky was alarming, and for Britain, an immediate concern. For a nation with a proud history of not only martial prowess in the air, but also technological innovation in aviation. An empty sky represented a potential precipitous decline in international prestige and national confidence. It also meant empty drawing rooms, test beds, and factories across the British Isles. At the regional and local level, this meant higher rates of unemployment, and at the international level, greater dependence on other states, including the US. The age of large scale, techno-nationalist defence programmes, seems to have come to an end. The TSR2 itself represents a pivotal moment for Britain and its self-perception, acting as a key touchstone for those wishing to point to the nation's imperial contraction, declining power and faltering military self-dependence. In many ways, Tempest now occupies that same space, and while Tornado and Typhoon clearly evidence the nation's continued ability To design, develop, and produce competitive high-level military platforms, Tempest has the potential to reignite national confidence in its aviation production capabilities. We have a paper later this afternoon addressing Tempest directly, uh, which I am very much looking forward to, so I won't cover that too much. So, what did cancellation mean? We have heard detailed accounts already today from a range of fantastic papers about the specification of the aircraft, specific technical details, alternative solutions, and the origins of GOR339. And so this paper will set your attention to the particular procurement dilemma Britain faced in the wake of TSR2's cancellation. There is no use doubling up here too much, and I am certainly grateful to have ready context established for me. However, there will necessarily be some overlap, so I can't avoid that. What did cancellation mean for Britain immediately? What did it mean for Britain in the midterm? And what did cancellation mean in the long-term? Considered through a consequence focused lens, the death of TSR2 thrust upon Britain, a host of dilemmas, but also opportunities. The decisions Britain would make moving past this bereavement would shape the nation's defence procurement practices throughout and beyond the Cold War and have, made, have immediate relevance to our contemporary aerospace environment. The heel turn towards collaborative modes of defence procurement common now emerged in a post-TSR2 world and for Britain were facilitated by the emergent needs of a nation with no more room for American hardware and even less room for solo production. The TSR2, heir apparent to the RAF's remaining nuclear responsibility, was unceremoniously abandoned only a few weeks into Harold Wilson's term. Work had begun on TSR2 uh, back in the late 50s, with it being held as the world's most advanced and sophisticated aircraft, and we've heard much of that already. Unfortunately for BAC, the aircraft's anemic projected market reach was one of its Achilles heels. The TSR-2 was specified and developed to meet hyper-specific operational requirements for the RAF. As with Britain's Blue Water battlefield nuclear missile, which I know that I hear very little about, but I think is very interesting, TSR2's chances of achieving an acceptable economy of scale, a word we hear from uh, economists quite a lot, were unlikely, increasing unit costs well beyond what Wilson's cabinet could stomach. Interestingly, the Tornado would suffer from the inverse problem. Given its multi-role design and ability to serve and be adapted to serve in a fairly wide range of strategic roles, you'd have thought the Tornado would have been an easy sell to a wide range of buyers. And that's certainly what what the cabinet thought. However, its multi-role design greatly increased the uh, the platform's complexity and price and resulted in the aircraft becoming too expensive for the majority of third-party hopefuls. In the end, the Saudi Arabian Air Force was the only uh, third country to purchase tornadoes, ostensibly for diplomatic reasons, playing the Brits and the Americans off of each other in uh, different situations. So the Plowden Committee report on the aviation industry of 64 and 65, asserted that Britain's domestic market was far too small and as a result, incapable of generating production batches large enough to offset the rapidly escalating costs uh, of developing and producing new aircraft. The report, whilst recognising the potential economies achievable in collaborating with European partners in production, ultimately recommended purchasing American aircraft off the shelf. TSR-2's cancellation cost Britain a staggering amount of money. Add to it the abandonment of HS681 and P1154 and, the approxim- and approximately 8,000 people were made redundant. The, sla- uh, the spate of Labour government uh, initiated cancellations which filled the mid 1960s generated an increasing amount of concern regarding the apparent and indeed idleness of, the Brit- of Britain's aircraft industry and its overall health. Certainly aircraft cancellations have contributed significantly to the emergence of British declinism and have been kind of thread together, both in defence production and international prestige. And in a lot of ways, the TSR2 has become the poster boy of that era for that very reason. Once identified as a mode to pursue power projection Britain's growing inability to compete with the United States in the production and export of arms seemed terminal introductory by mid-decade, bringing an end to what Anthony Sampson has called, quote, the golden age of British arms exports, end quote. Saki Dockrell suggests that Wilson's government had behaved fairly vaguely and ambiguously towards TSR2 and its ultimate cancellation. Certainly, quote, from an electoral point of view, no government would have wanted to commit itself lightly to a decision to cancel a major governmental project, given that it would tarnish the reputation of Britain as a modern, competent and technologically advanced nation, whilst at the same time creating redundancies at home. Though, as Dockrell goes on to suggest, Wilson's gravest concern was the notion of further increasing Britain's dependency on the United States especially in the global export of aircraft. The previous Conservative government had made an analogous decision in purchasing Polaris, reflecting an increasingly inescapable reliance on American military equipment. The dilemma. So what dilemma did Britain face? Well, to start, viable prospects to occupy the RAF's frontline role were rather limited. Each potential solution came with a host of complicating factors. In the short term, the RAF, alongside bringing into service its new Anglo-French SEPECAT Jaguars, begrudgingly accepted used black, uh, Blackburn Buccaneers from the Royal Navy and extended the life of an aging and increasingly, increasingly obsolescent V-bomber force. France and Britain had launched work on the bilateral Jaguar program in 66 between Bridgette and BAC, but aircraft would not enter service until 73. These Jaguars would also only fulfill a small proportion of the Royal Air Air Force's projected tactical nuclear responsibility, lacking a lot of the long-range all-weather capabilities required for an effective and reliable tactical nuclear delivery platform. And we've heard about these already uh, with the TSR2 from Paul. The RAF's Vulcans wouldn't be finally retired from service until around 84, after having their service life briefly extended following the invasion of the Falklands by the Argentinian forces. The the tornado, which we'll discuss shortly, would replace the Vulcan after having begun to enter service in the very late 70s. Interestingly, the RAF's daring raid on Port Stanley would have been essentially impossible with tornadoes raising a rather interesting historical what if. Buccaneers would enter RAF service in October 1969 at RAF Honington with 12 Squadron. In the longer term, Britain would need to find a viable alternative to TSR2. There was obviously no realistic chance of a national programme, given the nature and ensuing drama of the TSR2's death. My fellow speakers have covered this well enough already. Britain had briefly begun exploring, uh, exploratory work on AFVG, an Anglo-French solution, but the French had withdrawn in 67. The British government was hardly surprised, as they very rarely were with the French, but the problem still needed addressing. The Wharton design team established for AFVG were kept together and contracted to work on UKVG simply to retain the design capabilities built up over the past decade. Lost experience couldn't be afforded. So only two realistic solutions appeared, purchase an American aircraft or upgrade an existing platform. So F-111K, Britain had of course, and we've already heard about this today, but I feel it's important to reiterate, Begun the process of negotiating the purchase of American F 111Ks, Aardvark's, with Wilson's government heeding the Plowden report. In fact, Britain had originally been negotiating with General Dynamics and the US government for 10 F 111As to act as a stopgap until a bespoke batch of F 111Ks could be produced for the RAF. This was kiboshed, and instead it was decided that Britain would purchase only the custom variant. Uh, as the F-111A wasn't suitable for RAF purposes. An RAF technical team, accompanied by the deputy chief of the air staff, took a trip to Fort Worth's General Dynamics site with every intent of the the UK joining the F-111 project. Not only was the F-111 looking to be a cheaper solution than the alternatives, but the Americans offered a space in the project with unit costs being price-locked. And I think we've already heard today why that might have been. Offering British policymakers and bureaucrats some good distance from the intense anxieties felt in this period over the inescapable and uncontrollable escalation of costs in the development of military technologies. A very capable platform in its own right, Britain had all but finalised the Aardvark purchase, even going as far as to send RF test pilots to the US and taking receipt of ground equipment before abruptly cancelling the deal. The aircraft had been specified by the US Tactical Air Force comparably to the TSR2, with one of the only significant differences being the addition of variable geometry swing wings. Interestingly, a feature that the tornado itself would employ. RAF pilots in situ were very impressed by the American aircraft and were as stunned as the general public to hear that the deal had been flung, and I do mean to say flung rather than fell, into an abyss. By all accounts, the F-111K would have done the job and done it well, but aircraft performance, as is so often the case, is not the deciding factor. Political scientists, Eduardo Munhoz Svartman and Anderson Matos Teixeira, produced a peer reviewed journal article for the Brazilian Political Sciences Review in 2018, which claimed that, owing to its inability to fulfill an interception role, the English, canceled their order of American F-111s. This is a fallacious claim. Not only had the British formally ordered American aircraft, taking the transaction to the point, as I said, of receiving equipment, but the cancellation was politically motivated, and we've heard much about this today already, rather than as a result of imagined strategic deficiencies. I imagine this confusion stems from the unsuitability of the pre-modification F-111A rather than the F-111K. The, only cancel- uh, the cancellation was met with considerable confusion, not only in the US and their vendors, but also by the RAF. To support their assertion, the two political scientists cite Anthony Bennell's 2002 article from the RAF Historical Society's special edition journal, The Birth of Tornado. Bennell doesn't, however, claim that the British halted consideration of the aircraft because of its inability to act as an interceptor, as they had claimed, making Svartman and Teixeira Uh, To his citation incorrect. I think it's indicative of how lightly touched the entire pocket of history is this has happened. The reality of the F-111 order cancellation was, of course, political. Britain had recently taken receipt of McDonnell Douglas Phantoms in 68, and while certainly an American designed and produced aircraft, Britain's variant incorporated a good deal of British technology, including different engines. Even so, should Britain go ahead with F-111, the vast majority of the RAF's frontline squadrons would be equipped with American aircraft. And so, whilst British industry would be thrown a bone, it would hardly suffice. Alongside the Navy's new Polaris missile, nuclear missiles, which we will discuss shortly, this was an untenable political prospect. American industrial penetration in Europe was an emerging concern, and the prospect of British industry becoming effectively a subsidiary of a much larger and more bolshy American cousin was very real indeed. Despite achieving a relatively strong cabinet majority of 10 to two in favor of the F-111 purchase, a lobby had formed almost immediately seeking to cancel it. Opposition was strong. Following three more years of pressure from the growing cabinet lobby, Healy, Dennis Healy, canceled Britain's order of the aircraft. Back-to-back cancellations Uh, Continued to plague the Royal Air Force with substantial challenges not only to its immediate ability to perform its role, but also to its ability to fulfill future responsibilities, imagined and unforeseen. Healy was keenly aware that he had only been able to persuade the Royal Air Force to accept the cancellation of TSR 2 by promising them F 111. On top of Polaris, you can see why there's tension in this period. Under the new Labour government, extensive pruning of expenditure had begun in earnest most aggressively in the defence sector. Achieving economies in the nation's defence have become the de facto pursuit of the Labour government. As David Greenwood has asserted, the increasingly selective nature of defence efforts under Labour is the direct result of weighty economic constraints. However, attempts to seek economies in defence, I might suggest, were not sought through structural rationalisation of the aerospace industry, but rather through policy inversion, termination of aircraft contracts hence the great series defence procurement cancellations. Whether cancellation of TSR2 was sensible or not, the fact remains Britain's Labour Party and Labour government was making a concerted effort to amputate what it saw as overly bloated and excessively costly defence procurement programmes. And Keith has touched on this. So what was the other option? Well, a buccaneer upgrade. The other potential option was to upgrade a buccaneer for a specific RAF variant. In fact, Lord Mountbatten, again, we've heard about today, and I heard some groans when his name was mentioned at uh, the Ministry of Defence, had been arguing vociferously for the development of the Navy subsonic buccaneer since the inception of the TSR2 project. He was one of the, the project's greatest um, enemies, as it were. As a former high-ranking naval officer, Mountbatten certainly brought service allegiances to his role, uh, but the buccaneer was most definitely a highly regarded and thoroughly combat tested aircraft and would continue to rear its head right the way until the end of the 1960s when the tornado program was taking shape. However, the Buccaneer would have required a significant amount of redevelopment and its projected service life would have been a good deal shorter than a new platform, British or American. In retrospect, Healy has indeed suggested that by the time of the stated decision in 68, To further accelerate a complete withdrawal from the Middle East, the Royal Air Force's operational requirement, for which the F-111 had been procured, was now outdated. Healy also argued that the real tragedy of TSR-2 was not its cancellation, but the fact it had been started in the first place. Britain, Healy elaborates, no longer needed the capacities offered by the OR, and a subsonic buccaneer upgrade programme would have been sufficient. However, he strongly believes, that the, uh, believes uh, that the Royal Air Force would have never accepted an aircraft design in the Royal Navy in that capacity, given the internecine warfare between the services and the existence of what is referred to in the MOD as NIH or not invented here. Healy indeed recounts that his chief of naval staff, Varel Begg, quote, claimed that Mountbatten had allowed the RAF to go ahead with the TSR-2 only to compensate them for losing the strategic deterrent to the Navy's Polaris Polaris submarines, a typical example of, quote, log rolling. Healy had actually fought quite hard to retain Britain's world role, and so he had been caught between maintaining a capacity to project power abroad and having to rely on American aircraft to do so. And so we see, um, in Healy's belief at least, Um, these promises being made to the RAF and being broken. So, Polaris, well, we promise you TSR-2. Oh, TSR-2's cancelled. We promise you F-111. Oh, we've cancelled F-111. So there is somewhat of a trend here. So, what was the solution? Britain's eventual solution would come in the form of an entirely new, tri-nationally developed aircraft with an innovative and fantastically complex swing wing, a cutting edge terrain following radar or TFR and a highly advanced avionics package, the Panavia Tornado. Six NATO nations, including Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, the Federal Republic of Germany, Italy and Britain birthed the MRA-75 project in the summer of 68, with the signing of a memorandum of understanding for the production of a common feasibility study. As 69 drew to a close, Canada, Belgium and eventually the Netherlands much more quietly, had withdrawn, citing various concerns. Each had expressed varying degrees of unease at rocketing program cost projections and increasingly unfavorable aircraft specifications. By the summer of 76, with only the Italians, Germans and British remaining, the first aircraft orders will be placed, ending the long and often arduous process of feasibility, definition and development. This wasn't a quick solution, however. It wouldn't be until June 5th, 1979, that the RAF would take receipt of BT-001, the first production tornado assembled at Wharton in Preston in the UK. The tornado would serve as the RAF's backbone for four decades, finally leaving service recently in 2019 after a storied, active and accomplished service history. Critically, however, it's worth noting here, if it hasn't already jumped out at you nakedly, that not only did the tornado overshoot its original 1975 target by four years, but it entered service a decade and a half after the TSR-2 was cancelled. The MRA 75 consortium had been so named precisely because it was the intention of the partner nations to produce and have in service an active aircraft by 75. This was a timeline maintained by consortium partners right the way until the end of the 1960s, even so far as the Netherlands leaving the project. Indicating that while the RF would find its solution, eventually it would be operating obsolescent aircraft far longer than it had initially predicted or indeed deemed strategically acceptable. Again, we've heard today how goalposts uh, are often shifted. So things start to look acceptable. Uh, This is an all too common theme. And whilst the RAF's strike interdiction role was greatly diminished by the arrival of Polaris, the gap was problematic, and glaringly so, and and Healy and uh, and, um, the Labour cabinet knew about it. Given the decade and a half between the TSR2's demise and the tornado's arrival, the RAF would have to plug the emergent gap in its forces. Not only had the RAF lost its primary control over the nation's nuclear capability to the Navy and its shiny new American Polaris missiles, uh, but it had no tangible frontline aircraft for the 1970s onwards. Under the period's conditions, collaboration in defence projects was quickly emerging as a sort of panacea for achieving in eco- economies in procurement across Western Europe and, a bit and beyond. In 1970, David Keith Lucas suggested a, quote, confidence gap existed between the level of confidence required to support the production of military <laughs> technologies and the amount of confidence available within political circles to undertake programmes. This became increasingly problematic as there also existed a substantial gap between what the armed forces needed to meet their envisioned roles and what was demanded of them and the volume of confidence available, especially in defence procurement. As the defence budget budget shrunk proportionally, labour increasingly turned away from large-scale procurement projects, as we've heard, most notably in aviation, and this confidence gap widened. A lack of confidence killed projects and project deaths further dampened confidence. And the cycle continues. W.S. Stewart has indeed suggested that the Plowden report recommended increasing collaboration with European partners precisely to narrow the confidence gap. The spate of difficulties experienced by cutting edge British programs in the 50s and 60s had resulted in runaway costs and severely reduce credibility for manufacturers and designers. If Britain were to continue its global role its increasingly limited, on its increasingly limited budget, it would have to seek partnerships. Ultimately, conducting defense research and development across various activities had become prohibitively expensive. Indeed, contemporary voices were calling for a more rationalized approach to defense, one which would limit defense spending to a more economically efficient and strategically viable range of responsibilities. One Rusie lifetime member had, at the same time, uh, at that time, called for Britain to further increase the nation's reliance on its allies to improve its own defense. Continuing, continuing, the member called for a streamlining of defense arguing for effective and efficient compromise, rather than wasting time and resources attempting to shore up any and all assets of def- uh, facets of defense. In 1983, all three tornado producing nations, now joined in company uh, by Spain, would come together again to collaborate on the Eurofighter Typhoon. Importantly, this new continental fighter project would use bureaucratic and industrial structures established for the tornado, much of which was and still is based in Germany. The two projects undeniably share blood. A line is commonly drawn directly from tornado to the typhoon thanks in no small way to their shared parentage. Engagement with the typhoon is generally considered a requirement for an informal understanding of the European industrial landscape's development and its products from the 1970s on. Certainly, the aircraft laid the groundwork for defence procurement collaboration in the high-end aerospace sector and on more conventional hardware, including the FH-70 and SP-70 howitzer programs of the 70s and 80s. If nothing else, the tornado is significant for how utterly unique its development was. Collaboration itself certainly wasn't unique, but the scale of the collaboration in the case of the Panavia tornado was. In 76, the political scientist Bjorn Hagelin had identified several collaborative programs underway in Europe, 11 of which were bilateral between two countries. The MRCA tornado was the only program undertaken by more than two states in his study. Larger, more complex, more expansive, and more expensive than the programme surrounding it, the MRCA was a novelty, at most times more likely to fail than it was to succeed. Indeed, the aircraft spent much of its life, especially early on, before the 1970s, wobbling precariously on the edge of collapse. Yet, despite significant jostling between project partners, it did succeed. Indeed, had the project failed, Britain's Labour government had little else to turn to. At a forked road between potential solutions, Britain opted to equip the RAF with a collaboratively produced aircraft. Not new solo nationally produced ones, not an upgraded platform like the Buccaneer, and not an American one. Had the TSR2 project not folded, Britain's desperate need for a new aircraft wouldn't have been a present force. And whilst the MRA75 consortium had started without Britain, its success as Tornado was in a large way contingent on high level of British industrial experience. Belgium and the Netherlands instead turned to the F-16 and were absorbed into the ever-present American military industrial machine. West Germany had been working on NKF or new combat aircraft prior to MRA-75 and were in hot pursuit of an internationally competitive German defence technology industrial base or DTIB. And whilst it's difficult to say whether West Germany and Italy would have turned to America had Tornado failed to find footing, what is undeniably true is that had the TSR2 project not crumbled, a multinational program in Europe would have been significantly more challenging. By extension, without the pre-established networks, connections and infrastructure established by the Panavia Consortium for the Tornado, the typhoon would have been a much less realistic prospect." It has been argued that the tornado program was intended to be a channel through which the British government could demonstrate the viability and seriousness of Britain's bid to join the European Economic Community. After all, excluding Canada and Britain itself, every other one of the MRA 75 consortium member states were also members of the European Economic Community. And the level of bureaucratic and industrial integration required to support a project of the tornado scale uh, and its complexity undoubtedly brought uh, brought partner countries closer uh, in contact and in de- into de- dependence. West German and to a lesser extent Italian support for British entrance into the EEC would prove vital, especially in the face of obstinate French vetoing. It's important not to lean too far into historical what-ifs. They're often unproductive and highly problematic. However, the TSR2's demise was certainly a significant moment in British, if not European, and dare I say, world history. I'm sure that we will hear more in the few remaining papers today about the lessons we might learn from TSR2 and how they might be best applied to Tempest. The programme's post-Brexit environment promises to answer questions about Britain's future as a major defence sector player. Thanks, and I'll see you all in the Q&A.